you drive it off the lot and you realize that about 50,000 other people have exactly the same car or vehicle you have. It's something we call confirmation bias and that's what I want to spend a little time talking about in terms of how we see ourselves and how we interact with uh, others and God and all the other things that come along with that. Because whatever we look for, we will find. It's called confirmation bias. So, by way of introduction and welcome, welcome to Love You Later by the podcast, The Psych Monologues. This is Dr. Ray Mitch, your host. It is now January, oh man, June 18th. I'm a little a day late and a dollar short, maybe many dollars short. But I am a day late. I, I'm supposed to be doing these every once a week on Wednesday, and it just it just didn't come together yesterday. So uh, I guess, as the old phrase goes, better late than never. So let me get back to my original point and what I w- was talking about uh, with confirmation bias. And the reason I want to bring that up is because what I want to talk about today is living in grace and rejecting shame. And the biggest problem I think that I see a lot of and and it is the biggest because I obviously I can't have any perspective on that but but it's something I notice uh, that it's seemingly so familiar to us particularly in the Christian community it's so familiar to us that we just don't pay attention to it and we really it it's almost like somebody's injecting us with with poison and it's at such a low dose that we don't really notice it until it um, increases in our system to such a degree that we finally die and and that's really what shame does and how shame operates because i i have been uh talking about this for a, a number of years in a lot of ways, I've talked about it not really knowing that it was shame that I was talking about. Um, but the more I have begun to notice it and see it in conversations and in relationships and in references people make to one another. I mean, have you ever been in a friendship with somebody and things go south or you do something wrong or whatever and I have heard more people than I can count anymore say I am so sorry I am the worst friend ever the worst friend ever hmm there, there's no comparison for that at all right versus saying I'm Sorry, it really didn't work out the way I had in, intended, and I'm sure that it it had has uh, hurt you in some way or it created some disappointment. And I'm going to do everything I can to make make that up to you. Now, again, even make that up to you has a tinge of shame to it. But you see, it's it's embedded in our language, and that's that's something that I, that uh, I probably will talk about at some point in the future, uh, since. Shame is the is is the topic of the hour in a lot of ways for me, and I see it everywhere. And that's what confirmation bias is: is once you tune in to seeing the impact that it has on our relationships, and even my own language, I can't not see it anymore. And how it how it it um, discolors and 
contaminates the people's relationship not only with each other but even with themselves because when somebody says i'm the worst friend ever they've already made a condemnation of themselves so let me let me just real quickly kind of define our terms a little bit which is something that i like to do uh, in any discussion so that we can be sure we're on the same page and operating really from the same uh, definitions here. So Brene Brown, who's the foremost researcher in, in shame, um, has defined shame. And I, I, I make a little kind of variations off of her theme. But one way that she puts it is shame is the experience and the belief that there is something fundamentally flawed about me. And that flaw separates me from the important people in my life. As a matter of fact, it goes even further than that. It actually places me in a position where I deserve to be rejected and separated because of these flaws. Now, remember, shame is about identity. It cuts to the very core of who we are all the way down. It, it is not about just my performance, although we make the leap from performance to person, the, the idea of identity. But guilt, on the other hand, and, and Brown does a great job of helping us discern the differences here. Guilt's about my performance. It's the things that I do behaviorally or choices I make or other things like that that, that are a part of feeling guilty. And I feel guilty because I compare what I've done to my some standard, whatever that standard is, whether it's a biblical one or an internal one, which in a lot of cases, we that standard, that internal standard we have is usually calibrated against the person that we're interacting with, which means that it floats. It changes from person to person, right? So when we talk about shame and guilt, we're talking about person versus performance. And I, I don't try to do the alliteration that's probably dangerous to do doing a podcast with all the P's that are part of that. But be that as it may, the interesting thing that is the counterbalance, or I would even say the antidote to shame, is grace. And grace, interestingly enough, is also about identity. It's about who I am, how I am defined, and, and how different I am because of my relationship with Jesus, and, and even in light of God's, in God's eyes, <clears throat> But potentially, our hope is is that that would translate into how I see myself. Unfortunately, that's that's a longer leap than most people understand. And some would say, well, it's a head versus heart thing. Yeah, it is. That that most people would say that's probably the longest distance in in human history is from the head to the heart, assuming that the heart is someplace other than the head. I mean, the heart in our chest is. 18 inches but the heart that we're talking about from a biblical point of view is is way 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 more than that and isn't necessarily placed in uh, in any part of our body itself and and we love to kind of make it real and kind of track it and and um, uh, center it someplace in order to try to understand it but remember that, that grace is the antidote to shame because it is about our identity as well. And that makes sense because shame attacks 
our sense of who we are and even our worthiness to belong. And grace restores that. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor that is offered me without condition, without uh, uh, pre-status reports or getting myself cleaned up or anything like that. I am accepted as I am right out of the gate. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to fulfill some uh, contract. I don't have to do any of that. Which to us and to our ear, because we operate on shame, is just simply too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, it ain't. It's just not. So I, what I wanted to talk about in, in light of this is that a lot of times you can have these conversations about shame and grace and identity and performance and all this other stuff and, and not really kind of anchor it into everyday life. And what I want to do is is anchor it in two, two parts of life. <laughs> I want to take an example from Scripture to anchor it because we oftentimes will see these these people in the Bible as if they you know walk around with a halo on and they 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 never make any mistakes and and even even if they did that they they, they don't it doesn't seem to impact anything. And that's just fundamentally not true. We have in the pictures or in the pages of Scripture pictures and cameos of the human condition. And that's what we have to pay attention to because then suddenly the story is now about me. It's not about somebody else because whatever they're facing, I have faced as well. I am dealing with those same things. So, I just happened to be reading in First Kings today, and I uh, I I was reading there, and it was we told it was, there's the story, the uh, remarkable story of the prophet Elijah facing off with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and and there's this stunning victory by God over over uh, this cult that is part of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and. And Elijah has this stunning, you know, he, he's the mediator of this stunning victory by God. And, and it, it briefly calls, uh, you know, Hebrew people back, the Israelites back to their relationship with God. Of course, it lasted all of 10 seconds. And, and then Jezebel, the, the priest, and I, I just love Jezebel, her name, because it just is so fitting of an evil, evil queen. But Queen Jezebel puts a price on his head and she has enough power to do that that it puts the the uh, fear for his life into Elijah. Now remember what he just came from. He just saw how stunningly powerful God was at Mount Carmel and his memory has gone pretty pretty um, short as well just like the people of Israel. So she puts a price on his head. This is this is so profoundly discouraging to him that he draws his, his cloak up and his uh, garments up and takes a run. <laughs> and takes this, this makes a marathon in the, uh, uh, in the Olympics look like a walk in the park. <clears throat> because he moves from the north of Israel, Mount Carmel, all the way down to Beersheba, which is the south. It basically bar, uh, marks the southern boundary 
of all of Israel, not just the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. It's all the way to the very south, on the very border itself. It's about a a two-hour drive, unimpeded, without interruptions, about 100 miles, and he arrives there, and then he takes another journey into the wilderness and eventually goes for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, which is an interesting place for a meeting. But he goes there because he assumes nobody's probably going to be following him, and he's making himself scarce, and it's there in a cave that we have the one of the more famous interactions between God and a human, a prophet in, in Elijah, where he shows himself in uh, a mighty wind and in an earthquake and in a fire, and there's nothing, God's not in it. And, and Elijah's sure that the, the mass, massive kind of greatness of God is going to show in this moment, and it doesn't. And what's fascinating is that it's finally in the silence that he hears God. And that's something that I want you to hang on to because I'm going to come back to it. And I'm going to have a longer conversation about silence and solitude, which is, by the way, what Elijah is engaging in here. And here he hears God say something interesting which is what kind of caught my attention. I was on my bike this morning and I was writing and listening to it. And, and um, I, I have a dear friend of mine that, that uh, uh, is the voice for the Daily Audio Bible. And he's, he's writing with me as I listen to scripture, uh, as I ride and think and so forth. And, and God says this, he says, what are you doing here? <laughs> and it's, you know, I, I'm thinking if I'm Elijah, I'm kind of scratching my head like, huh? I mean, why are you asking me this? I mean, you know everything, right? I mean, why would you be asking me this at all? And so he asks Elijah that one question. What are you doing here? Now, what I want to do is I want to take a rabbit trail which apparently I'm known to do. But what caught my attention as I was writing was the individual words of that question. Because they're words that are connected to the impact that shame can have on us because it colors each one of these words. And now let me show you what I mean. And we're going to zoom in real close and get microscopic with a few of these words. And then we can kind of come back out again because we've already seen kind of the big picture that's here. Okay. So if we zoom in real close, we, we have Elijah asking or God asking the question, what are you doing? And, and Elijah, this is kind of the big picture. Elijah says to him, um, you know, I'm, I'm jealous for you, God. I have done everything you've told me to do, even in spite of the fact that the prophets have been all killed and, and your, your altars have been all torn down. But I'm, I'm here. I did your bidding. I was, your, I was jealous for you, which is a word that's used in an English translation, which you think about possessiveness as jealousy. I, I have guarded you. Uh, through all of this. So now let's go microscopic. God says, what? 
And like I said, that that question is curious. I mean, if you think back to the Garden of Eden and God God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? It's like, what, really? So if God already knows, then why is he asking a question? Maybe, maybe it's to get me to ask the question. Not him. He He has the information. But maybe it's asking me to pay attention to what am I doing? Clearly, God is focusing on the activity of Elijah. And Elijah goes directly external. I'm doing all these things for you. I'm jealous for your name. I have hung in there. I am faithful. I'm the only one left. But he doesn't say anything about the internal stuff that's going on with Elijah. And we can put this picture together. It's not that hard. Elijah's no less human than we are because if I do something really stunning and then I get I get a letter from somebody that says because of what you've done I've got a, a contract out to kill you I think I might get a little discouraged I might think that I what I did was uh, probably a mistake probably even in spite of the fact that I was very stout in standing up for for God in that moment, like Elijah. So he God asks what? And and Elijah answers in, in talking about activity. But then it goes, What are you doing? The next word, you. It's not someone else. You know, God's not saying, Hey Elijah, what about the other prophets? How are they doing? He's saying you. And see what we're tempted to do whenever we're asked that you kind of question. What are you doing? Our temptation is is to dilute the impending punishment that we see coming. And so what do we do? We compare ourselves to other people. Well, other people are doing it. I've heard that story so many times. I've said it so many times. I'm not so bad. I mean, after all, you know, I'm going 60, but everybody else is going 70. (laughs) I hate that example. Anyway, so shame's the driver here, I would suggest to you. It's something that we don't see. It's this invisible contagion within the human heart. So how do I dilute the impact of my flawedness by comparing it to somebody else who's doing it worse than I am? And that's probably the only time that we make a comparison to somebody doing it worse than me. Because generally we make a comparison about ourselves in terms of I'm, I'm, I'm so bad because everybody's doing it so much better than I am. So we love to switch course and switch table when it serves our purpose in terms of self-condemnation. Next big word is doing. Of course, God isn't asking Elijah about the state of his heart. He's not saying, how's your heart or how are you doing? There's that word again. It might not, you know, one way to get us to think in another way uh, down another track is to say how how is your how are you being <laughs> but it's so awkward that we wouldn't want to use that anyway but uh, uh, of course when somebody asks what then they're asking you know activity and then doing is about activity as well it's i, I there's something i should be doing and i'm obviously not doing the right thing if somebody's asking me what are you doing And then the last one is here. And here is not somewhere else. 
here is right now. It is living in the present. I mean, ironically, when Moses has the interaction with God in the, in the desert, as a matter of fact, right near this same place that this is taking place, God, when Moses says, so who do I say you are? And he says, I am. He doesn't say I was. He doesn't say I will be. He says, I am. It is here, here where I will meet him. Not there and then, not there and in, in, not uh, uh, in the past somehow, but here and now. And there and then can be the past and it can be there and then can be the future. But God isn't there yet. I mean, in the omnipotent, omnipresent sense he is. But he's asking Elijah, what are you doing here? Because I am here. And so what about grace? Where does this enter in? I mean, how would these conversations change? Or how would this conversation change if we imbued it with grace? And, and I'll, I'll go back to my previous point and just remind, to you, remind you of something. Shame, from the very beginning of time, however you want to place that, has been part of our spiritual DNA. Because when we chose to be in control of life and living and relationships without God in it, all that's left for us is shame and it is it, it has contaminated all of us and our relationships and how we see ourselves in those relationships and even our relationship with God because we're looking at at a human having an interaction with God so what 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 change and this is all speculative this is just all in in um Mitch space um but when God asks what, in grace we can honestly say, I'm waiting. Because we're not assuming, or I'm not assuming I've done something wrong, and I'm just waiting for the punishment to come. I'm just simply waiting. What are you doing? I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you. And then when the, the next word comes about that says what, and it's you, what comes out of that is an immense degree of gratitude, of humbling uh, chosenness, where I can say, it is me, because I am having this conversation so grace offers me standing because I am now identified as me, you. And the next word is doing. And what are you doing? And it goes back to waiting and listening and quieting our soul or resting or any of those things, so many of the mystics that you talk about or you read that, that have moved further and further into that oneness with Christ or being in Christ, as Paul talks about, is 
it isn't necessarily a center of frantic, frenetic activity. It's a quieting, a restfulness, a listening to what God might say. And I can't help but wonder if God chose to speak to Elijah in a, what well, the way scripture renders it is a still small voice. It's almost like a voice that comes out of the silence to help him calm his own soul, to be able to hear what God has to say with him, to say to him. And the last word is here. And, and what are you doing here? And what the, our grace, our grace-based answer is, is I'm here with you and entering into this space where grace offers me a standing to be identified as God's beloved. And this is really where the key comes down to. This is the punchline of this whole thing is is living in grace and accepting fully the beloved status I have and rejecting shame and catching it when it happens in my life um, that wants to create more conditions. See, that's how shame operates. It creates more conditions, more contracts, more things to do to prove that I'm worthy of my what? (laughs) I'm worthy of what? To belong? So now it becomes a trade. I do the necessary things so that I can belong. And if I don't do the necessary things, then I don't belong. Because we have this abiding belief that is as strong as our ancestry that we are fundamentally flawed and that flawedness is what provides the basis for our disconnection from the people that are so important to us. So there's a lot more here than meets the eye and and the the key kind of phrase that I want to leave you with is where I started is live in grace and reject shame We can't reject shame until we start to identify it. My hope would be by unpacking some of the interactions between a man and God, that God's asking him a question that probably strikes fear in all of our hearts. What are you doing here? To use that as a means to catch how shame contaminates and colors and uh, distorts the relationships we have not only with ourselves but others and with God himself. And that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. It's June 18th. A couple quick reminders. Be sure to hit the website and and, uh, subscribe at drmitch.com and uh, subscribe. You will get the installment of the uh, podcast that way. If you're not interested in that, you can always go to podbean.raymitch.com. And uh, that also will allow you to subscribe. They have an app so that you can get alerted uh, when a new podcast comes out. Uh, The other thing I will remind folks of is is our continuing need for 
donors and partners to partner with um, me and uh, the team that, that I have assembled in, in doing the silent retreats for CCU students, there is no time, no window wider uh, for us, for um, me to be able to uh, introduce students to the same idea of silence and solitude and how important it is to be able to hear God's voice there uh, rather than doing things for him or learning new things about him. So uh, we need partners, we need uh, donors to help us uh, begin to develop a fund of scholarship fund to send students uh, to the CCU silent uh, retreats that happen once in the fall and once in the spring. And we'd like to be able to make that available to as many students as, as we possibly can. Uh, uh, like I said, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. I am Dr. Ray Mitz, your host. Love you. Later.